Good evening. I'm Eric Love, a professional boys to men fanboy, and I just wrote a 10,000 word four part essay on End of the Road that I'm publishing on my personal Substack, The Love Letter. To celebrate the 30th anniversary of Boys to Men's signature song, I'm sending out this special podcast edition of The Love Letter. I'll be your host, and I'm joined by three world-class experts on culture, race and racism, and music fandom. And I cannot wait for this conversation about the legacy of End of the Road, which at 30 years old this summer is officially old. Fortunately, our panelists are even older, and they're old enough to remember 1992. Let me introduce them. Here we go. Dr. Bob No, originally from Fort Worth, Texas, is a sociologist and executive director of institutional research at the Kern Community College District in California. And he is the former co-host of the legendary radio show Pop Life, which aired on KCSB Community Radio in the early 2000s. Bob's publications include a paper on the television representation of black coaches in March Madness broadcasts and He's written extensively about the interactions between masculinity and sabermetrics in professional baseball. He also listens to more music than anyone else I know. Seriously, Bob listens to everything. He should be a professional music critic. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about uh, Boys to Men and all sorts of things. All right. It's been a while. I haven't, I, I haven't talked about pop culture in this kind of... Uh, way in a while so i'm looking forward to it yeah man uh we all miss pop life so this is great to have you back on the back on the air um yeah just so people know pop life was on from 4 a.m to 6 6 a.m on, on thursday morning so we had we had a we had a we had a, a small but 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 strong loyal following so yep and i know i was in that following uh also joining us is dr Nena magbula originally from portland oregon She's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Toronto, where she also holds a Canada Research Chair in Migration, Race, and Identity. She's written extensively on race and racism, and she wrote an award-winning book in 2017, The Limits of Whiteness, Iranian Americans and the Everyday Politics of Race. Netta, also an avid music fan, although for the past several months, she's been reviewing snack foods on her Twitter account, instead of reviewing music. Netta, welcome to the show. Hi, Eric, great to be here. Netta, thanks so much for being here. This is gonna be a lot of fun. And our uh, final panelist this evening is Dr. Clayton Childress, originally from Berkeley, California, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Toronto, where he is also the spouse of Netta. His research centers on cultural production, specifically the production of decisions, taste, and meaning. His award-winning 2017 book, Under the Cover, examined how a novel went from creation to production to reception. Clayton also just co-authored, just like a month ago or something, a fascinating piece on American popular music. It talks about genre, popularity, 
and convention and like breaking conventions uh, using data from MySpace. I think this means Clayton is still on MySpace. Uh, we'll, we'll try to get into that during the show today. Anyway, Clayton, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm ready to talk about old things, as you can tell from what I publish about. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. So here we this is this month, July. We're recording here. It's July 2022. And that means it's been exactly 30 years since End of the Road was on the radio, which is how people listened to music back in 1992. And everyone was listening to this song. It was number one. Uh, starting in, uh, I think it actually didn't hit number one maybe until August, but it was all over the place, all summer into the fall of 1992. 13 weeks at number one on the Hot 100. The song broke a lot of records. Um, so let me just act, just start by asking you, do you remember that summer of 1992 uh, when the song debuted? What, do you remember what you thought about Boys to Men, what you thought about music in general? How did you encounter this song for the first time? What do you remember about this song? And who wants to start? Uh, I think I'll start because I'm the oldest here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was, that was my senior, senior year in high school, 92, 93, right? So um, uh, that summer I was pretty much just kind of thinking about college, right? Um, and kind of, at the same time, though, right, that being my senior year in high school, I, I, at that point, I'd kind of uh, started to form kind of my identity around pop culture and music in particular. And so for my generation, which is kind of the tail end of, of Generation X, right, that, uh, we were still kind of in the thick of the quote unquote revolution, right, that that grunge and Nirvana had kind of brought upon everyone. So uh, and, you know, that's what I listened to most, right? semi-identifying with Generation X or, you know, I guess wanting to because it sounded cool when people talked about it or, or, or whatever, right? But but I do very clearly remember uh, End of the Road, Boys to Men, because it was inescapable. It was on every pop radio station uh, constantly. And, you know, I, I wasn't even really kind of a, a fan of that kind of music at that time, you know, because like I said, I, I was really into rock music uh, more than anything. And, but like I said, I remember it, uh, being a big hit at our high school dances. Uh, and, you know, everybody knew the words, right? Like, I mean, that, that, that that's kind of one of the things that I remember. Like, when, when it came on, like, in public or something like that, like, people would sing along. Um, and so I definitely remember that. So anyway, that's what I was doing. I was uh, not into Boys to Men like I am now, because I love Boys to Men now. Yeah, I think that covers the question. So that, that's what I was doing in 1992. Netta, how about you? <laughs> okay, I was like 11 years old when it came out. And where was my head at when I was 11? I was like um, desperately trying to watch VH1 and MTV whenever my parents left the house um, uh, because that was like on the list of things I was not allowed to watch. That also included things like Beverly Hills and I don't want to know. So for me, like end of the road, it was similar to 90210, both because this is like an illicit thing for me, but also there are these like romantic ideas of what my future could possibly hold, right? Romance, um, attention, uh, adoration. So this was like really fueling my early fantasy life of like 
a life without sort of living under the thumb of my parents and these ideas about femininity and what it would be like to be like a good Iranian girl, right? And so um, for me, it's just all about like being young and having these really like immature, but also like kind of cute ideas about growing up in adulthood. Yeah, in a nutshell. Ooh. But like, again, similar to Bob, out there in Portland, Oregon, like this was on the radio constantly. I feel like everybody did know the words. There was just like a total cultural saturation of this song that summer. Um, so that was definitely true for the part of the country that I grew up in as well. Yeah, I definitely, I think, so I was 13. Um, I like distinctly remember, I think like most 13 year olds getting duped by Motown Philly. Um, like I loved Motown Philly and like Michael Bivens had taken like a like kind of corny college acapella group and tricked us into thinking it was a new Jack swing band. And then uh, I bought the CD, but this wasn't on, this wasn't on Cooley High Harmony or was it Eric? I don't That's remember. right. No, no, it, it was on the Boomerang soundtrack. Yeah. On the Boomerang yeah. soundtrack. Um. So, and I, at 13 years old, um, I danced with a girl named Bridget. A middle school dance uh, to end of the road, um, and that was a very formative experience. And uh, my quote-unquote friend Louise uh, stole her phone number, and uh, she, uh, Bridget, and Louise ended up being boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, and uh, I kept on being friends with him, and he did that to me three more times. Um, but me and Bridget danced to end of the road, and that literally was the end of the road for my relationship with Bridget. <laughs> it lasted about three minutes and eleven seconds. But it was formative as shit. Wow, man, that yeah, that is those are some intense emotions, and um, <laughs> it's uh, it's fascinating to me that like that you know here we are. So I was in Detroit, right? I was in. I I remember distinctly the first time I heard this song, um, because I was already unlike Clayton. I didn't feel duped by Michael Bivens. Like I was in middle school. I guess I was thirteen also, right? Yeah. And so I was I was like I felt like the first kid at my middle school to become a boys to men fan cuz I remember like going around telling people oh you got to listen to this Cooley High Harmony like this is really good and I felt proud of myself for like liking this music like before other people you know what I mean so I had that kind of that fandom where you feel like an ownership or like you feel like you can take credit for the success of boys to men so that's where I was in the summer of 92, I, I was already like a fan. And then we were we piled into my my family minivan, my two sisters, me, my mom and dad. I think we were driving to visit my family in Atlanta, but I don't remember where we were going. We were going on a long road trip and I brought along my own headphones, like my own radio, like a little like, you know, like radio cassette player. Because I didn't want to listen to my parents, you know, Michael Bolton or whatever on the radio. So like you, Netta, I was looking for some romance or something. Like I didn't want to listen to adult contemporary. And uh, so I was, I tuned into my radio station and I heard, I don't know if I caught it right from the beginning, but I heard the song and I was like, is this, is this calling me bad? Is this, who is this? Like, is this? And then I think it must have been when we got to the, when they got to the, you know, the Mike McCary spoken word section where I was like, oh no, this is Boyz II Men. Girl, I'm here for you. All those times at night when you just heard me and just ran out with that other fella. Baby, I knew about it. And then I started freaking out, right? Like I told my parents to change the radio off of Celine Dion or whatever. I was like, change it to, change it to 97.9, like change the radio. And they didn't get to it in time. 
But so I remember sitting there in that minivan going like, that's the new Boys to Men song and it's really good and I need to hear it again. And uh, for, I, I was so I've been chasing that high ever since, folks. Like here I am now hosting the podcast because <laughs> I'm trying to get back to that spot. But you know, what's I too, I'm be- still chasing romance in my life and that happy forever after. So yeah, I relate to that. <laughs> and Bridget, if you're listening, I'm still. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but weren't we all? I mean, so this is. If you're of a certain age, your parents had to co-sign your music at least a little bit. Right. Like you couldn't listen privately and didn't. I mean, Boys to Men was at least much more acceptable and tolerable in my house to publicly listen to than a lot of the other stuff I was listening to. Yeah. And I wonder, I want to get back to something Bob said about like this was the era, of, you know, early 90s. Right. So like you were saying, Bob, it's grunge. It's there's a lot of like, you know, that kind of music, which I don't know if that's more or less like like Clayton's saying, socially acceptable than, you know, this, these four, this high school uh, acapella group that uh, pretended to be a hip hop act for like five minutes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a thing that everyone was writing about, right? Like, I mean, people were talking about music in terms of like what Nirvana was doing to music and, you know, and granted it definitely had a significant impact, right? But Boys to Men was, was one of the things that like supposedly Nirvana was like rebelling against. But, but I mean, I think if you talk to like actual musicians, like they, they would have, they wouldn't have said things like that. Right. Like uh, it was a larger societal kind of like cultural um, capitalism and, you know, just general disaffectation, uh, right. Uh, with um, capitalism and all that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, like it's weird, right? I mean, we think about it now, right? I mean, Boyz II Men were gigantic; they sold a zillion, million, million, million records, right? But, but that New Jack Swing in general, right, or whatever you want to call it, like they they don't write about it nearly in the like in the way that they write about like that moment in grunge or whatever you want to call it, right? Like is is a canonical moment in cultural history, right, in in America, where like you know, the the kind of music that Boyz II even though it's not necessarily done in that exact same way, kind of that, whatever you want to call it, smooth R&B um, meets kind of more uh, modern uh, R&B, I guess, uh, what do you, Neo Soul, you know, I, I guess the beginning of Neo Soul, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, but when people do talk about it, it's very kind of like niche, it's very like, this is a special genre that no one knew about back then. When in fact, like I said, I mean, this song was on the radio 24 uh, seven. I didn't uh, uh, I didn't have MTV at the time, but whenever I was at my rich friend's house who they did have uh, cable, uh, that video was on constantly, right? So, you know, you bring it back. Like I said, it's, it's a pretty significant like genre of music, like their influence, I, I still hear it today in kind of the uh, neo soul, I think like, you know, you can definitely, um, and all of those permutations, right, that are, uh, um, that I would say on the radio, but like even that is kind of a different thing now, right, so. But it's so interesting to think about like the lack of harmonizing anymore in like today's music, like people are harmonizing with their own voice with the way like tracks are layered on each other nowadays or like background singers, right? It's meant to like enhance the vocalist's sound. So even if there is harmonization, it's a very different thing than like this era we're talking about where it was like four distinct voices in voice to men and you could really like hear each one. Each one got their moment of spotlight in a song, but it was also true for like En Vogue, SWV, any number of these groups, like the harmonizing was the point. And now like, that's an entire thing that doesn't exist. Like we were just talking about Dua Lipa tonight and other like 
pop acts that have that level of cultural saturation that you can even possibly have in today's media, Lizzo, Dua Lipa, whoever. And it's like, it's just a totally different approach to melody and harmony. Well, there's just less groups in general. I mean, so like Boys to Men, like that era was weird in that like, it was, right? So it's clearly influenced by like 70s soul and like soul groups and soul bands, but it's like kind of pre-boy, like is Boys to Men a boys band? Um, or like boy bands didn't really become a thing again for another three or four years after. So they weren't called a boy band in the same way that like, right? Like there were girl groups like SWB, right? And then like Destiny's Child probably being the last very big one. Um, but they like were playing off of like Motown too. Exactly, and yeah, like yeah. So Smokey it's, Robinson and the Miracles. And so like, it ends up being oh. kind of, it's timeless in the way it's like kind of out of time. Yeah. Yeah, like well, I mean, really fit. the Detroit lineage I think is, is kind of like said, that kind of music is, I mean, you know, a quality yeah. that people often say it and who knows what exactly what this means is that it's timeless or whatever whereas you know the some might call it motown philly yeah exactly but the boy, ba boy, <laughs> boy bands are really about white people right like new kids yeah. in the block culinary bad even though they had mixed race people uh in there for sure right but uh yeah in that way it was like kind of elevated and separated but at the same time it's it's probably a reason like it's not talked about um, in the same ways as like, you know, pop culture in the 80s and 90s, right? Like, you know, I, I was thinking about like um, all those shows that used to be on, like I Love the 90s and, and, and all that stuff. And, and just, it seems like Boys to Men doesn't get the due. And I'm sure Eric, you'll agree with this. They don't get the kind of credit uh, uh, for their uh, pop cultural significance. I mean, just, I mean, just in terms of just commercial success, I mean, they sold a gazillion records, right? I mean, like, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like you all are saying, you know, there's this, there's this nostalgia element to what, what Boys to Men were about, right? Not just their immediate predecessors, you know, like um, uh, New Edition, right, which is, I mean, they themselves were trying to be New, new Edition, that's what they were trying to do. Uh, when, when the group formed in their high school in Philly uh, in the 80s, they were, they were just trying to be just like New Edition. And then, you know, we can say New Edition was trying to be like the Jackson 5, right? So, like, it, you know, and, and keep going back, like you were saying, uh, Netta, Smokey, Robinson, everybody else. And then, right, so but that style of harmonizing, like Netta was, was saying, kind of went out of fashion. And I think more, maybe even more to the point, boys to men themselves, they, they shot so high so fast, right? Like, you know, they debuted in 91. By 94, they were... The bit, one of the biggest acts, I mean, you could list them alongside, you know, Mariah Carey, Michael Jackson, like the biggest names in American pop music, like they were in that echelon. And then something happened where they became kind of like a guilty pleasure or like something that was like cheesy. And so I watched this, uh, there's this great Netflix uh, show. And to your point, Bob, this I think is the first time Boys to Men have been taken seriously in in like a big you know music documentary kind of a way there was this episode of the netflix music documentary series called this is pop and the first episode is all about boys to men and so they talked to a couple of you know like scholars uh critics right music journalists and they you know they they seriously evaluate boys to men's legacy and one of the points they make is that boys to men were so nostalgic in their image and even in their production 
that once their their style and I would argue end of the road created all this space for a lot of music that's very similar to end of the road, right? Like the, it sort of became the quintessential R and B sound was like what they were doing, right? And as soon as that happened, Boyz II Men became old and like the newer groups that came out after, including the white groups that that basically just copied them, right? Like uh, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, they were new, but Boyz II Men wasn't allowed to be new, right? This is the analysis that this uh, this Netflix show uh, put forward, and I think I think that's about right. Well, I mean, I think with End of the Road, with you, I mean, it's it was it's a weird moment where you have like four guys in their early twenties making adult contemporary pop music right <laughs> where like it's just like it's a weird thing and then younger people come in and make the adult contemporary pop music just a, like you know 10 degrees poppier right so yes. it's like voice of yes. both ends up like timeless and out of time in this weird sort of way i completely agree with that because if you think about like the tone that got established the way you're describing eric and how it became a kind of template it's only two years later that you have Usher's first album yeah. in 1994. And can you go back to Boys to Men? It's kind of from a market perspective after you've had Usher. Every time I look at you, there's so many things that I don't wanna do. He was like so young in 1994. How old was he? He was like 14 or yeah. something. Yeah. And he was super sexy. like what yeah. he was putting out there as a really young person was like yeah. very very sexualized and it like came off kind of like he was taking the template but he made it that much more edgy that much more young and like that definitely was part of right this truncated legacy like eric you're talking about how their contemporaries of boys to men were like mariah carey and other people um but i feel like it was usher and some people and who like came Angela. right in yeah <laughs> and it was like you know, this I, I've listened to Boyz II Men. They never kind of like got into, I mean, for lack of a better word, uh, hip hop, right? Like I feel like hip hop is never like they, they stuck to vocals. They were very much they, they didn't really have like collaborations with hip hop artists and things like that. Well, I just think of like Mariah Carey, for example, right, where she embraced it, right, where she collaborated with Jay Z and um, Buster Rhymes, and, you know, all, all these people or whatever and like that she kind of kept herself um relevant in that way i think a lot of acts kind of started to do that and and you know maybe that's i'm not saying that they went wrong but but you know they, they look it, it it felt like to me like they fell off a cliff i don't know if, do you know anything about like their uh relationship with hip-hop i mean do, I, I mean because that's the other thing right like uh, kind of like what netta said like Usher was kind of dangerous, like super, like, you know, where, there, where, where the sexuality was more overt, right? I think it was always kind of implied in Boys to Men, mostly from that one guy's super deep voice, right? Um, <laughs> right? It was but, subtle, but yeah, to your right, point, it, like, they yeah. sang about making love, yeah. right? Like, Usher was much more explicit in yeah. what he, he put to words. It was yeah. middle-aged sexy. It was about, like, giving people roses. Like, yeah. it wasn't... yeah. Yeah, and uh, to your point, Clayton, uh, Boyz II Men is much closer to Celine Dion than I would say, you know, like Jodeci. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they get compared <laughs> to Jodeci, but really. Oh, Jodeci was like singing love songs in ski masks with machetes. <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> Pretty much. And yeah, and basically, you know, like as much as I was trying to get away from my parents, what actually happened? 
you know, spoiler alert for those of us in middle ages, I was becoming my parents the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, did they ever think about going hip hop? The answer is definitely yes. I mean, I was going to say once they hit the mainstream, once they got big, there was this whole thing where people were saying they're not black. They're across, they crossed over. I remember talking to a friend of mine, her name was Jennifer in high school. And, uh, you know, we were talking about boys to men. This would have been around 96, 97. And she was like, boys to men, they're not black. They crossed over. They don't count. And they were, so they were accused by, you know, in particular black people of being not black enough. And I think, you know, I think that personally was offensive to them. And I think they wanted to, I, I'm sure, Bob, they were thinking about what you were thinking about, which is they're, tr they're trying to stay ahead of trends, not be just a nostalgia act or whatever. And so they actually they teamed up with P. Diddy, who at the time I think was still known as Puff Daddy back in 1997 for that, for the follow up to their second album called Evolution. And so they made some hip hop sounding songs on that album and they are terrible. They are absolute <laughs> trash, They're just complete garbage. But they tried, you know. Eric, do you think they suffered from, did, did they have an artistic genius? Is there like someone in the group? Like, is there a Q-tip of Boys to Men, you know, or like, <laughs> you know, like a Kurt Cobain of Boys to Men? Like, I, they never, it never really seemed like they had somebody who was like at threat of going solo or like breaking out or like a quest love of Boys to Men who was like the voice for the group and who people were like attributing the genius to. Did that not happen? Man, that's a really good question. Um, my sense is uh, Nathan has been talked about, Nathan Morris, uh, who he's the first voice you hear on End of the Road. He's been talked about as kind of their their leader. Like he's he's the sort of business manager and kind of the one who smooths over the personality conflicts. But let me let me dem let me demonstrate maybe the limits of Nathan's talents in that regard. In 2019, there was a uh, there was an interview with Dallas Austin, who is this producer. He he did a lot of New Jack Swing stuff, and he produced Coolie High Harmony. And Dallas Austin kind of spilled the beans on Boys to Men in 2019. He was on YouTube, and he just was said he said like Boys to Men were super arrogant after Coolie High Harmony. They were just a, they were really you know like jerks to everybody. Didn't treat people right. You know, they're smelling themselves too much. I think was the exact quote that he that he said. And he said, I didn't want to work with them anymore. And a lot of other people that I know didn't want to work with them either. Um, and so, and then Questlove, right, specifically, they were high school uh, classmates, Boys to Men and Questlove. They, you know, they're in that same Philly high school at the same time. And in the Motown Philly video in the background. That's right. Quest, Quest, yeah. yeah, Quest. And I think Black Thought is also in the Motown Philly video. Yeah. So, I mean. And Christian Soriano, you remember that uh, designer? He went to high school with them also. Whoa. Man, that high school. They had a good one. <laughs> But yeah, so Questlove, do you remember this? Questlove had a website for for a minute called Quest's True Stories or something like that. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there was a Boys to Men entry. This is Questlove just like wrote out like a paragraph about a bunch of different celebrities, like a whole bunch of celebrities. And Boys to Men, if you clicked on Boys to Men, he said, yeah. So back early when the roots we were trying to get started, you know, I I left them a message saying, hey, could you maybe like you know shop my demo tape around or whatever. And they never got back to us. And then Questlove said, you know, he who laughs last laughs best. Um, and basically implying that they were just not kind. They were just kind of jerks to people. So, oh, yeah. So after this 2019 interview uh, from their producer, for, you know, back in the day, he calls them out. 
Nathan, who's supposed to be the level-headed, you know, dude. If you go look at Nathan's Twitter page today, his most recent tweet is from 2019. It is this profanity-laced, like, why don't you shut your mouth, you stupid bleep, bleep, bleep. And that's his most recent message on Twitter is from 2019, responded to that. So that's, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think they had a, you know, like you're saying, Clayton, Q-tip level, you know, you know, brains behind the operation all their biggest hits right i mean this song end of the road babyface la reed and daryl simmons um and that actually gets me to a question i wanted to ask you all which is you know like this you know there's this and i'm glad i have clayton and netta here because i remember uh hearing you all uh in a in a on a panel this is years ago now uh, netta and clayton but the this truism in sociology is that all hits are flukes that like we don't, you know, like you can't predict quality of a of 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 a cultural product does not predict its success, you know, like so this was a big hit, obviously. And so I just I wonder if you all could just talk a little bit about this. Like this idea that, you know, I think of the song as pretty well crafted. I like the writing of it. I think it's just a beautifully done everything. The performance is excellent. I think it's very well done. And in his memoir, the co-writer of the song, L.A. Reed claims that he previewed several songs for Clive Davis, the legendary music producer behind, you know, all the big names. So L.A. Reid claims that he was sitting with Clive Davis one day. He played like a dozen songs for him. And he says Clive Davis picked out End of the Road to say, hey, now this right here, this is a special song. And this is before the song was on the radio, right? Babyface, uh, the other co-writer of the song, says, he said this, quote, you think you have something special but you never know what the rest of the world is gonna think. And Nathan Morris, the member of Boys to Men who's thought of as their, their unofficial leader says, uh, I wish we could say we knew it was gonna be huge, but we had no idea. In fact, Nathan admits that he didn't like the song the first time he heard it. He didn't even wanna do it. So I don't know, take all that and take it wherever you like. Are all hits flukes? Was this song destined to be a huge hit? What's, what's the deal here? Um, so I think after, People say a lot of things after the fact. If anybody thought this was going to be a big song, they wouldn't have dumped it on the Boomerang soundtrack. Like, full stop, right? Because um, this was not, um, I think Hot Sex on a Platter was the first single off the, this wasn't even the first single off the Boomerang soundtrack. And the way soundtracks worked in those days is you basically got all of the leftover album cuts. You sold soundtracks based on the names of the people who made the songs. And all the songs weren't good. They were leftover album tracks that you could then sell to a movie studio, right? And uh, this was also that era where soundtracks, like the songs on the soundtracks weren't even in the movie right? It was just like a promotional compilation album. So like, if anybody was expecting this to be a big thing, they weren't acting like it, you know? Um, and like, so the history of music is like, littered with all of these examples, you know, um, because we're talking about old things, a really fun one. As soon as I say this, you're gonna be like, oh my God, I get it. Um, Britney Spears, hit me baby one more time. turned down that song that song was written for somebody it was given to somebody and they said this song is not going to go it's not going to be anything it was for tlc it's a t-boss song 
Whoa. That's why Britney Spears sounds exactly like T-Boz on that song, because it's a reference track that was made for T-Boz, who turned down the song because she thought it was going to be trash, right? That's like the like kind of like whiny vocals. Oh, baby, baby. <laughs> it's quite low in Britney Spears' register, if you yeah. think about it. Wow. But this type of thing happens all the time. It happens much more often than it doesn't happen. Man, that's yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah. Uh, End of the Road was originally offered to Anita Baker who turned it down <laughs> she was like just not me um she anita, anita baker turned down all the songs on boomerang tony braxton basically came in for anita baker they wanted they wanted if you listen to those tony braxton cuts they sound like anita baker right yeah um i got it hold up i got a question and i think i don't know netta bob i think both of you can probably take a take a spin on this one and and so there's another song that's going to be 30 in a couple of months from 1992. And uh, it's the song Creep by Radiohead. But I'm a Another big hit from 1992. Um, so I have I, I'm a big fan of of Creep. I appreciate Radiohead. You know, I, I won't claim to be a huge fan, but like I, you know, I, I definitely listen. I've listened to a lot of Radiohead. I think they're great stuff, brilliant stuff. Um, here's the thing. End of the road on Wikipedia. The the article for End of the Road on Wikipedia. Uh, was created in 2005. It's been edited 548 times. The Creep Wikipedia page was also created in 2005, about a month later, actually. Uh, it, again, End of the Road was edited 548 times. Creep has been edited 2,178 times. The Wikipedia page for End of the Road is 600 words. The Wikipedia page for Creep is 18,000 words long. Uh, the over the past two months, the end of the road page has been viewed twelve thousand times. The creep page has been viewed forty-seven thousand times. What's going on here? I think a couple of things are going on here, right? I mean, one is just kind of uh, fandom, right? Ha the way fandom has developed. You know, uh, like you know, they're the uh, the BTS, the K-pop group, right? they have their army right it seems like every like big group has like that the, the fan base that can communicate in a way that they couldn't before find community and and kind of you know do things like edit wikipedia pages right i don't know if there was ever that was ever the case for boys to men i don't know if they had like a, a, a fan like i feel like people were fans of the song right i don't know if people were really like fans of boys to men like I don't know any, I, I, the only reason I know any other names, Eric, is because of you, right? Like, you know, and that's something I was thinking about just when you compare them to like the, the boy bands, like I can tell you all five names of the NSYNC guys and the Backstreet Boys guys, right? Where, where, you know, that was part of the way that they were marketed, right? Whereas boys and men, I don't feel like, like you said, there was no one person who was like the creative force and kind of, uh, there, it was all just, they were just a group. There was a skinny one. <laughs> There's a guy with the deep voice, right? There's a guy with the high top fade, like all that, you know, I mean, that's kind of how I knew them. So, um, yeah, it, it, they didn't, they don't, they just never had the fandom in the way that the Radiohead has 
fandom, right? I mean, that that's developed over time, obviously. Part of it is because they, you know, they've had a longer career and they've kind of built up uh, that fandom over time or whatever, right? So I would say that's one thing that's going on. Um, I just heard Creep recently as a rendition on the show America's Got Talent. Like it was a kind of, um, what was it? It was like an aerial act that were like kind of a husband and a wife. It was like super sexy. They were like, you know, suspended in the air doing all kinds of death defying stunts, but it was also kind of erotic. And so playing in the background of this like family friendly television show was a like weird modern rendition of creep. Um, and so if you, I think go to the Wikipedia page, like I haven't looked at it, but from what you're just Describing Eric, I would imagine there's a huge chunk of the Wikipedia page that is just about all the different renditions that other artists have done of the song Creep in the years since, because that was such a weird, spare, ambiguous um, arrangement, like that it could get taken into like a happy register with certain kinds of instrumentations. It could be done as like a duet. There was so many different ways to riff off of Creep. And I think that that's part of its legacy, right? Is like both the kind of ways that it's been um, adapted into TV shows. So not just in the background of like an America's Got Talent act, but like it's also been in the background of certain montage scenes like on, you know, serialized dramatic shows and things like that um but also like the many many different renditions that have happened in the past 30 years versus like has anyone covered end of the road like do you know anything about that eric yeah uh in 1993 it got its first professional cover the year after it came out which is pretty early i think <laughs> um and the cover artist was a little known act i don't know if you've heard of her gladys knight gladys knight <laughs> Um, also in 93, Boys to Men released their uh, an official Spanish language version of the song that uh... I don't know if that counts as a cover or not, but they re they re-recorded it in Spanish for obviously, you know, Latin America. The uh, punk rock sort of parody act called Me First and the Gimme Gimmies. They did a <laughs> version in 1995. Um, in 1997, Babyface uh, covered his own song, right? Uh, interesting about that is uh, he had a, a couple different singers that were with him on the song. One was Mark Nelson, who was actually one of the founding members of Boys to Men. Mark Nelson dropped out of Boys to Men before they recorded Cooley High Harmony to pursue a solo career. Um, but he sings End of the Road with Babyface wow. in 1997. And Sheila E. is on the drums for that one. <laughs> so how can you love me and leave me and never say goodbye? When I can't sleep at night without holding you tight. Girl, in 2000, 
2007, Boys to Men uh, teamed up with Brian McKnight's and recorded an all-new a cappella version of End of the Road. It's actually really good. It's like totally arranged for a cappella only. We belong together. And you know that I'm right. Yeah, yeah. Why do you play with my heart? Why do you play with my and Brian McKnight's in there. Spare production, it's pretty good. In 2011, uh, Boys to Men re-recorded End of the Road straight up, um, and it's absolutely awful. I have no idea why they did this. It was such oh, wow. a terrible idea. <laughs> It sounds bad. Um, in 2014, the Australian rock group Blue Juice did a YouTube rendition for this YouTube show called Like a Version. You might have seen some, they do a bunch of cover stuff on YouTube. It's really good. I just break down and They're a rock and roll. They're straight up like hard rock group. But their lead singer admits Boyz II Men is his favorite band. And this was his favorite song. And they did this song as like the last thing they did before the band broke up. And it's a very good cover. It's it's my favorite cover, actually. James, I think you, oh, God. Sorry. Let's finish, finish the list. Please. James Corden in 2016 uh, covered it on his show. We didn't have to finish the list. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> He did a, it was a parody of it uh, where they covered the Super Bowl and like changed the lyrics to be like the score of the Super Bowl was, and it's, it's pretty funny. So we've come to the end of the show for the Super Bowl with the final score. And then uh, just last year, Home Free, which is an all white acapella group did a very well-received version. And earlier this year, Usher and Babyface were on stage together and they covered the song and Wanye Morris of Boyzman came out to perform with them. It was pretty adorable. Those are the cover versions. None of them are mentioned in the Wikipedia page, now to your point. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the people are waiting for. Sounds like Wikipedia. you got to get to work, Eric. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I think uh, there, there are two ahead. possible theories here, or what's going on, right? One, you could say that that song is, I mean, I don't want to say, like, the, the actual song itself, right? It, it's kind of dated. It's very, like, kind of to uh, associate with very specific uh, point in time, era of music, and you know people don't like corny stuff anymore right i mean that's kind of what so that's people don't want to cover it people don't want to write about it right it, uh but the other way you could go with this is that it they they maxed out the song like there's there's you know with creep i always feel like when i do hear covers like oh that's that's an interesting take you know because because like Netta said like the ambiguity of the song and kind of the the universal uh 
the different ways which people can interpret that song in, in terms of their own life. Whereas End of the Road is a very specific, this is the end of our relationship, <laughs> you know? And that's the use of, it's a, it's, it's a breakup song. It's a longing for love song, right? Um, and so that's why it's been just kind of left alone, right, by the world. Um, I don't know which it is, to be honest. I, I mean, it can, it can go either way. I think part of it too is just like trends in music criticism, right? Where, which is like basically how stuff gets remembered and gets consecrated as being good 30 years later. So like basically from Bob Dylan through the strokes, you have like rockism, which is that like for music to be art, it like has to be made by white men with guitars, right? Um, and like for music to like be consecrated and remembered, and uh, like be taken seriously as having a more important message, um, like that's what it has to be, right? So and like boys to men fall, and like Radiohead like was definitely included as art at the time. Like I never listened to Radiohead, but I was like very aware that Radiohead was making art, right? Uh, quote unquote art, according to critics at the time. So and like boys to men, and so it's like rockism really doesn't fade away as like the primary mode of artistic evaluation until the early two thousands when like poptimism comes in, right? And you can like make pop music and like Beyonce can make a pop album and still be treated as an artist and very much talked about it. Like she can make a dance record that critics are going crazy for right now, right? So like Boys to Men is making pop at the wrong time to be consecrated, right? And like quite frankly has the wrong audience because like one of the ways music gets remembered is like music that is consecrated today from that era is like really whatever like Teen white teenagers who went to elite colleges liked in 1992 is now thought of as artistic, right? So like A Tribe Called Quest is art, but like Jungle Brothers isn't, right? When those are like entirely equivalent groups in 1992 and 1993, right? So I don't think like Boys to Men has like just lost that. I think it had the wrong audience. I think it's the wrong era of criticism for them to be remembered. Yeah, I would say something along those lines. Like, like I said, they never had that edge. And and, and I can tell you, I, I went to a, a a Catholic school in in like as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast in Fort Worth, Texas. So it was a very uh, a very white school, uh, you know. So, you know, my exposure to black music was pretty minimal until I got to college, right? And and even then, right, like at that point, like rock rockism at that time, you know, the whole talking about the the sea change of culture with grunge and, and nirvana and all that stuff that was like the dominant thing that was like quote unquote cool that's what the white kids were latching on to uh and and you know like i said boys to men was pop right and just the you know if any it was it was an object of ridicule by the time i got to college right just the videos and just kind of how outlandish they were and like like the you know like i, I even think about this like boys to men never even like their style like they had a very distinct style like um fashion sense and stuff like that right but um no one like tried to dress like boys to men, whereas everyone was wearing <laughs> right? you know? Like, I, you know, I, when, I, when I first got to Chicago, right? I, I'm from Texas, right? Uh, I went to an Army Navy store and I needed a coat because I, I didn't have a coat that was ready for um, uh, the winters of Chicago. And I bought this gigantic, like super thick winter coat. And a bunch of my friends had like several, and I remember I, we used to walk down the street and it was like, hey, we're boys to men, you know, and we'd like, because we were just like have these giant coats and, and the, you know, the, the, the fashion at the time were the big jeans and things like that, but the coat was like kind of the, cause, and we got that just from the, I remember the video, very much the video, them walking down the street, you know, like in, in giant coats or whatever. So, but yeah, so like, 
Boys of Men is part of a genre canon. They're not part of cultural canon in, in, in a way that like, like, like Radiohead, like everyone knows. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it, we've talked about it a little bit, but it's very much race too, right? Like a, a band like uh, sync or even Justin Timberlake, although I think people are, are starting to come, <laughs> starting to, to come around on that, right? Can, can be seen as like, oh, you know, let's think about the art, how the evolution of Justin Timberlake as an artist and all that kind of stuff, because he's white, you know, like that that stuff gets applied definitely more to to white accent than black accent, right? and I think it's coming around a little bit because you know there's more diversity a little more diversity in like music criticism and, and things like that. And actually of all the criticism, I think music diversity, uh, music does have the most um, uh, diverse voices um, that I think are available to the masses or whatever, right? But uh, yeah, I mean, that's always gonna kind of be the case, right? Like, and you know, I, I, I feel bad because I know this is one of your favorite songs and I, I don't wanna make it seem like this is something that's been lost to the ages because we, everyone here clearly loves the song. And a big reason why we love the song, Eric, is you. Let, let's let's <laughs> let's be honest here. Um, for for the listener, uh, you know, I, I was telling Eric, you know, it's like, you know, if I really had to like be honest about my main association with the song, it's that uh, it's Eric's ability to bring down a a house full of white people at karaoke night with this song. I mean, he just destroys with this song. So, um, but yeah, like I said, it's it's even that situation, right? It's it's a it's mostly white people who are like, oh, look at this white guy singing, you know, this R&B song and, and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel like they maybe did get lost in the shuffle a little bit. I would just think like calling it an R&B song, right? Because mm -hmm. like the ceiling for Black artists at that time was the top of the R&B charts, right? Mm -hmm. You can make like the top of the rap charts or the top of the R&B charts, but like pop music was still largely reserved for like non-black acts and for like right it, i mean that was like always the like challenge with eminem is eminem was making like the least radio friendly rap music imaginable but was on top 40 right and was getting played on alternative stations and like uh top 40 stations and not just like the rap stations or what used to be called the urban stations right where like boys to men was like making like hugely selling right uh best-selling music that still topped out at the top of r&b yeah, and that's the thing, and and here's where and and Netta, I think you're going to have a, a an interesting perspective on this. I mean, thinking about where we are now, right? Here we are, uh, you know, 2022. We can look back and look at where pop music has gone. I think it's pretty clear that at the time, uh, in 1992, there were music producers out there, including. What's the, what's the fraudster's name who produced Backstreet Boys? The guy who got convicted on on Ponzi oh, schemes. Lou, Lou Pearlman. Lou Pearlman. So Lou <laughs> Pearlman, I, I learned again from this Netflix show, Lou Pearlman in 1992, when End of the Road was inescapable, took out an ad in the Orlando Sentinel newspaper calling a talent call, saying he wanted, quote, this is the exact words on the ad, uh, boys to men sound with a new kids on the block look. So what he wanted was to take the strengths of boys to men that you all have all described here and then put white faces on it and white faces where we can know all their names. Right, Bob? So like, you know, savvy operator like Lou Pearlman and there are others like him who maybe weren't fraudsters, but they saw an opportunity in doing the kind of music the boys to men was doing with a more marketable group. 
And my my argument is that that trajectory has led pop music, you know, pop music, not R&B, like straight up American pop music ever since that we're still in a in a world now where, you know, not they're not recreating, you know, a sound like End of the Road, but it's, you know, taking those elements of black music, R&B and making them into pop. Like that's that's basically what American pop music is now, isn't it? I, I don't know. It, is that an oversimplification? I would say black music. I mean, it's it's kind of a amalgam of hip hop, R and B. But I mean, hip hop, I, I feel like is a dominant like force. It's really which which we talked about is distinctly not boys to men, uh, unless you count the terrible album they did with Puffy. Uh, Puffy, I, I still call him Puffy. Ned, it looked like you had you wanted to disagree with me, so you should, you should do that. I don't know. I I don't feel knowledgeable enough to take a really strong stance on this, but I think that Boys to Men, like certainly there was going to be, like Clayton was saying, this kind of ceiling on how far they could go given that they had been slotted into this like niche as kind of an R&B act that could definitely chart at like the top of the Billboard 100, but nonetheless, like they were kind of contained within this genre that was very racialized and it had these certain sorts of like limitations imposed on it. But when I think about the trajectory of American pop music in the time since, and also thinking of American pop music as fundamentally black music and music that gets extricated from kind of its original source of, of artistic, you know, uh, like it's it's aha moment right where it comes out or how it how it gets produced in community um i have to also think about like kind of um the way stuff circulates and recirculates beyond the united states like i feel like yeah. the story of american pop music in the last 30 years since 1992 has also been about like european djs yeah. taking right american elements and taking american black music in particular but they're also doing something that then really really like affected the the kind of also like R&B that even came across because a couple of years after this like moment we're talking about with Boyz II Men you have someone like Robin right some white Swedish singer who is, is like very much being played on the same radio stations alongside acts like Boyz II Men but she is kind of this harbinger of like what we now are listening to on top 40 radio in 2022 and so i don't know like i i feel like it is a transnational circulation of black music and a remixing it's not just that it's the us and europe but that for me is like making me feel certain emotions yeah. and then like this story kind of starts to get complicated yeah so i mean i think this is you know jennifer lena's argument that pop is not a genre right and i think that like pop is less of a genre than it ever has been Right. So at the same time you have this happening, you also basically have like Olivia Rodrigo is making pop punk. Right. Like she's it's like very guitar heavy and punk heavy. But, you know, it's like pop punk, and there's like a big resurgence of pop punk. Right. Where like people very unironically now think like some 41 is cool again, um, which is hurts my soul but like <laughs> is a thing that's happening. Right. So I do. It, it's it's. Um, Pop music is a Pomo nightmare. Um, like, I, I think it's really hard to typify, at least for me. Maybe I'm just washed and I don't get it anymore. Yeah, but, like, it really feels all over the place. And I think Ned is really right to talk about the, like, the transnational flows back and forth of, like, different things, right? Yeah, man, that's, I mean, that is a really interesting point. And 
I can barely t- I don't feel qualified Netta. I don't know why you say you didn't feel qualified. I don't feel qualified to talk about transnational music flows, but I will point out, you know, I, I mentioned a minute ago this there's this Australian rock group that was apparently profoundly affected by this song in particular, Boys to Men more generally. And I mean, if you, you know, you can look around, of course, these days, and it has been true for like a decade now, you can get on YouTube and see people from all over the world, you know, doing their own version of uh, this song. And, and um, so I, you know, I definitely think you're absolutely right about this, that it's, it's this transnational experience. Um, because also like pretty ahead, soon yeah. thereafter you get Napster and you get like LimeWire and just this like explosion of music that becomes at once like very, very accessible to also like people our age, right? Like that was, um, that became like the dominant way that we learned about new music and we consume new music. Um, and I think that that then impacted like the sound of the music for sure and not just the consumption of the music. Again, not an expert, but that's just my layperson's observation. No way, no, I, I think that's exactly it, yeah. I mean, you know, one one other way to put the question that I would try to pose to you all a minute ago about the legacy of this particular song is, you know, I think I think it's fair to say that it wasn't just a flash in the pan, this song, right? Like it's too big for that. But it has been like you, you know, you were saying a minute ago, Bob, lost in the shuffle a little bit. People don't. When you think back on the 90s, this one, you might have to like dig to a couple layers down before someone's like, oh, yeah, this one. Yeah. You know, what I mean, it's not like at the top of mind, perhaps, but still like this song, I think in production and the ways that you're describing Netta in, in terms of like the the way that music becomes accessible and and the way that the style of this song was around for throughout the 90s. Right. Like we had other groups doing like we were talking earlier. Um, and then, Clayton, your point about how this is like in the genre of R&B, it, it, this became sort of a, a canonical template, even if it wasn't a you know, broader, you know, it wasn't canonized in the same way that other, uh, you know, rock and roll music has been. And I don't want to let you get away with this, Bob. I mean, you pointed out that I, I back before I retired from uh, from performing at karaoke, uh, there there were times that I did this song. And I will say, all hits are flukes. Okay, fine. But man, this song is, I mean, it works. The song just works. It is, it works. It's It's well done. Yeah. Wow. All right. I, I think we are out of time. Uh, I, I, I could keep going for hours more with, with you all about any subject, in particular something that I'm as obsessed about as this song. But um, I want to thank uh, Bob No, Netta Magbula, and Clayton Childress for joining us here on The Love Letter. Can we do this again? Why don't we go around? You all pick a song and uh, let's do another one. You know, uh, Netta, you can go next. Just pick a song you want to talk about and we'll and we'll get back on the podcast. Let's let's just do it. It doesn't have to be an anniversary. It could be totally decontextualized, whatever you want to do. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Amazing. Let's I picked Tony, it. Tony, Tony. It's our anniversary. I love that song. It's about <laughs> anniversary. A song. <laughs> Eric, are you going to take us out with a song? No, I'm definitely not. But uh, you know what I might do is if you all are up for it, let me just play. Look, this is one of my favorite live renditions. It's from 1993. It's Gladys Knight and uh, Boys to Men on a uh, fundraiser. This was a benefit concert for uh, the United Negro College Fund. Uh, and uh, they did End of the Road together on stage. I think it's the only time that they were on stage together. Let's just, let's just listen to a little bit of it. Here we go. We belong together, baby. <laughs> you know, the, the tempo of the song is really like 
Like, like, I mean, all of us are kind of starting to sway, kind of involuntarily, and, and that—that's the effect that the song has on people. It, it, it causes you to sway. Sure. It starts not too intense, like pretty smooth, and then once once Kanye comes in, it hits. I listen to them go cheering for that. Kanye, this guy right here, he is 19 years old. Can you guys believe that people wore pants like that back then? This guy, I mean, as cheesy as this is, none of the other R&B groups had this guy. You know what I mean? Like, this dude... I think they might have been the last group to do the spoken interlude of a love song. I don't think people have done it since. I should do it a few times, but... Call 1-800-552-5212. Donate today. A mind is a terrible thing to waste.
Thank you all so much. This has been a real pleasure. You all are the best. I love all of you, and uh, thank you for tuning in as well. We'll we'll see you next time on uh, the Love Letter Podcast. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Eric. Bye. Bye.